Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. If the pandemic of 2020 taught us anything, it was that the world is a very small place and that if my neighbor is sick, then my community is sick and that my prospects are therefore limited. My guests on the podcast today are a Stanford professor of linguistics and education and her niece, soon to be an undergraduate at Stanford University. They come to this conversation from the perspective of the African-American community and what it is that we need to do to make sure that healthcare is responsive to the needs of all. My guests on the podcast today are Anne Charity Hudley and her niece, Emma Charity. Anne Charity Hudley and Emma Charity, you're both very welcome to the show. We are thrilled to have you speaking with me today. And I want to start with you, Anne, because you have a background as a linguist and a particular expertise in this area. We're very interested to know why you think language is so important in the business of medicine. Thank you so much for having us today, Moya. We're excited to talk with you. Your question is so important. I think especially now more than ever, we have people all around the world that are struggling to get healthcare. They're quite literally struggling to breathe. And the ways that we interact with patients to understand everything from what their goals are um, for being well and their, their own ability to care for themselves and for others combines with just immediate questions of where do you feel pain? What are you scared about? How can I best support you um, if you're a clinician, if you are caregiver, other patient? Language is the way that we do that, um, spoken and written and signed. So as a sociolinguist, I really look at how language impacts our social being. I think about that from our own perspectives, how that comes out through our communities, our families, our societies, um, but also looking at social and demographic factors. And so when I see these issues that come up in healthcare, access to healthcare, disparate healthcare based on people's socioeconomic status, their racial backgrounds, those things also line up with the ways that we either understand or don't understand each other because the ways that we learn to speak, the ways that we learn to communicate are so located within those people who we talk to most of all. And so if we're not communicating across groups, across cultures, even across languages, it's really hard to make sure that you're both being understood and you really fully understand someone. Now, put an illness on top of that, an acute illness or a chronic one, and that challenge to understand and be understood gets even more difficult. And when you think about a patient who's in pain or who is really just recovering from surgery and trying to get their needs met, there has to be another whole layer of care about language, about communication. Some patients in that state may only be able to uh, write or sign. Clinicians really need to be thinking about that, but everybody in that whole healthcare system really needs to be thinking about that effective management. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I want to dig down further into this because most people listening to this would say, well, you know, we're all Americans or we're all Australians or we're all Indians or whatever it happens, whatever they happen to be listening to this conversation. And yet we know that there are differences, nuances in the way that people from different parts of the country, from different social backgrounds, use language. Is that your understanding? 
Yes. So I look at these issues across languages for sure. But a lot of my research has to do with within a language, how these issues will vary from people who consider themselves speaking the same language, but different varieties of that language. And so there are two concepts with this that I think are really important. The first is mutual intelligibility. That is just the idea that even though you and I are speaking and we consider ourselves to be speaking English, there's differences in vocabulary, there's differences in pronunciation, there's differences in how we use the language, our cultural competence, the ways that we show emotions, the ways that we express fear or hurt or regret, those vary. And when you're in within a language, sometimes you don't realize that those are the things that vary. So if I were to switch into speaking another language, it would be more clear that I've made a change. But if, I, if I'm trying to express fear and the way I do that culturally is different than what you're used to seeing or listening or perceiving, you may not realize that I'm even afraid, right? Because that is a different way of expressing that um, through communication. And so the other concept that's important to my work is how do we then share what I think of as the burden of communication, the responsibility not just to communicate effectively, but to really work to make sure that you understand the other person and share that responsibility across not just production of language, but the perception of language. And in the healthcare arena, think about how important both mutual intelligibility is, not just over time, but in particular situations, And then really thinking strategically as part of the healthcare mission, how do I share that burden of communication when you're working with not just the patient, but the family, the caregivers, everyone in that person's life to kind of understand how that situation, that illness, that injury really impacts the way that they communicate about themselves with others. Again, really interesting points. Um, But I'm thinking about this specifically as a medical educator. I don't know that there is any part of any course in any medical school, and I may be wrong here, that teaches us how to communicate in the way that you're talking about. How do we understand the language when there are cultural differences, clear cultural differences between the student from one social background, possibly racial background, and a patient who is, yes, a human being with all the pathology that human beings have, but who presents that very differently? So I think you are right. It's astonishing to think about how this is not necessarily part of medical curriculums in that formal way. But I am very optimistic in a sense is that there are master physicians who are able to do this seamlessly, either through their own natural linguistic abilities or also the ways that they have studied and observed and been very careful. And so I think the first step is to really start to document and observe the the clinician's who are doing this well. And think about in terms of that practical education that goes on in medical settings, how do you help someone watch this in process? How do you help someone hear on that someone sharing that burden of communication? How do you understand the ways in which you can use your language to be more effective? And then I think from there, we can start to build out that curriculum based on those masterful physicians that I've had the great fortune to be around my entire life. Thank you. And I want to bring Emma into the conversation now. Emma, you're of a different generation. Do you see things in the way that Anne and I might see them? Because, you know, we're a little bit older and we've seen the world in a particular way. You come from a generation that is quite different. 
your your the language that you use with your peers will be quite different and it appears to us that we've almost overcome those cultural barriers is that your impression yeah i do think so i think that my generation from my experience is very accepting i'm biracial and so i think i've had a lot of experiences where there are conflicting cultures or potentially misunderstandings or i'm also really into diversity work at my school. I helped found the new board made of students for diversity stuff, which is really exciting. But I think, yeah, my generation, I think in terms linguistically has a very niche way of talking, especially because of all the social media stuff and things like that. But I think that, I think personally, in terms of cross-cultural communications, I think people hopefully are getting a little bit better from my experience. But I do think what Anne is talking about is very relevant. And I think that the barrier between what people talk about, what how people talk in their homes versus how people talk in academic settings is honestly increasing in size. And the way that I talk to people in academia or at a college interview or something like that might be very different than how I talk and how a lot of people talk in different settings as well. So I think even though that sort of linguistic acceptance is growing, I think that academia is a space where there is room for continued growth. Thank you. I think that's a very good point. Uh, and the other issue that occurs to me is that not all patients in medicine are going to be from the generation that you're describing, where they have overcome that through, as you say, a niche way of talking. So we have several problems here, one of which is the generations talking to patients who are of a very different generation and whose language is going to be very different. So I'm going to bring Anne back into this. Anne, how do we, how do we deal with that? I think really specifically and strategically, we have to make sure that we check with patients to see if they fully have understood what's happening to them, what they need to do as part of their healthcare, and what is going on as part of the processes. I think from my perspective as a linguist, but also as a patient, sometimes what happens is information is given to you and it's really quick. Your physician in particular, their time is very limited and that's really important. And so what we're trying to do is say that that team of people who helps with that communication and understanding may have to be broader so that you have more time working with patient advocates, with nurses, with other people in the healthcare system to make sure that your your linguistic understanding of what's going on is more complete. Some people will need things explained to them multiple times. Some people will need it explained in different ways. And some people will really have to talk through what's going on in a longer form than we often see now. And this is everything from the specifics of understanding. I'm wondering about specific linguistic examples of this. Most medicines have two names. There's so much challenge that comes up just with patients trying to figure out which name they should use. Is it the same medicine? How do I pronounce it? Right? You get in that anxious situation when you're with a physician and you're like, am I even pronouncing this medicine that I'm taking in potentially is saving my life correctly. I've been in that situation as a linguist, right? Because of that. I mean, just thinking about what levels of um, making me think of the burden of communication I have in that situation. And then sometimes it's just really understanding then how that linguistic cultural practice will play out in everyday life. So when people are asking questions about what they should do or not do, like, how do you do that? How do you make someone feel comfortable to ask those questions? And how do you give answers that really are meaningful for them linguistically, but also culturally. And that's a big, tall order. I, you know, I've worked on this for most of my life in school situations and have a real respect for the complicated ways that we're doing this across languages and across subject areas. And when you put the healthcare situation 
and the stress from the patient point of view um, and the demands from the um, physician's point of view on top of that, that's where we really are going to have to get creative as we expand this out. I want to drill down more. And I'm thinking in particular, I'm sort of sitting in my, my clinic and I'm seeing patients from different linguistic backgrounds, but also different cultural backgrounds. At what point is it the cultural issue? And at what point is, a, is it a language issue? So I'm thinking in particular, you see people from some cultures where there is a, an implied understanding that they will have tests for almost everything, that symptom that they present, or they'll have an injection every time they come to the doctor. That's not necessarily the way that a Western-trained doctor is going to manage that situation. So you immediately have a breakdown in the communication in terms of the expectations of both parties. How does language play into this? So that's a great example of how language is culture and culture is language and that they are seamless, right? What is a culture? It's the um, systematic artifacts of what we do, what we say, how we live our lives. And that is most often expressed through language. And so in that situation, you have a couple of different kind of first line ways you can go with it. You can really think about some people will really work to be linguistically and cultural competent. So they would start to understand those different cultural nuances, particularly for populations that they most frequently serve. But we know that that is a really tough thing because many people are serving people from all over the world at this point, right? And so then what you have to do is go to a more generalized awareness situation and think about explaining some of these differences from that cultural perspective through a set of questions. So understanding, are there things about this treatment plan that make you uneasy or nervous or things that you think will be hard to do in your family or your community, right? You don't even have to necessarily say for your language or culture, depending on what you're comfortable with and what your patients are comfortable with, so that some of those aspects will come up. And I have had amazing clinicians and nurses who are quite adept at this. I'll give you one example that was really important in my own treatment uh, was just an oncology nurse, and she was of Southeast Asian descent, but knew to anticipate talking to me about the fact that most you know, of the media and general representations of what happens with chemotherapy is that your hair falls out. But she said to me, look, I just want to make you aware of this. For many African-Americans on the type of chemo that you have, your hair is not going to fall out. It's actually going to straighten. And so all this you've been seeing about, you know, your hair falling out, that's particular to different cultural groups, racial groups. And I wanted to make sure you had resources to know what to do with your hair once it was straight. And to me, that was a really important moment of not just cultural competency, anticipation, and questioning, um, asking, but also gave me a chance to realize something that I had no other way of getting informationally. Like no one knew that in my culture, my family, this was new for us and has been so invaluable because it allowed me to prepare for a situation in a more specific and relevant way to me than the discourses around me that quite honestly would cause you more anxiety than for your group. And so that to me is like an example of one. I have many like specific examples of how this happens that I think part of it is really asking those questions, being a little bolder than most of our professional um, culture, you know, groups might say, oh, well, don't bring up the person's race when you're talking about the uh, chemotherapy protocols and deciding, you know what, I am going to do that. I'm going to be culturally competent and intrusive in a way to make sure that um, you're getting the information that you need as a patient 
uh, versus just general messages, it would have just been easier to kind of gloss over it. And so I think that's that linguistic interchange that these things will often often be solved or addressed in moments of cultural and linguistic bravery (laughs) as we kind of push what is included in a normal course of treatment, a normal course of medical conversation a little bit further. Yeah, what you're telling us, Anne, is that we need to think very carefully about not only the medicine, but how that medicine is going to be offered and what we're going to explain about that medicine. And we need to understand one another, full stop. That's where we need to start. Emma, when you, from your perspective, thinking about the world that you're now going to have to come into as a young professional, which eventually will happen, does this terrify you? Do you feel that not only are you going to have to learn medicine, but you're going to have to learn about how that medicine is received in different cultures? I don't think it scares me as much. I think I kind of grew up with con- with science always being in the context of sort of social realities. My grandparents practiced medicine, but they practiced it in a predominantly African-American neighborhood and they are African-American themselves. And so there was always like, I was so hype about science, but I always sort of had this context that in within my science, I should try and find a greater purpose. So I think that in terms of education, also, I'm a fan of like cultural studies and things like that. So I don't think it'll be a problem for me, but I think it's really important as well, because I think science is one of those things that has kind of glossed over a lot of the social context. And we're only now sort of realizing how deeply ingrained, even with COVID and vaccine sort of stuff and like, and like trust within the African-American community, all these sort of conversations are just starting to come to the forefront. So I think that I'm quite excited for it. I think it's a sort of needed change, as Ian said, as we're sort of introducing this reality into into medicine and bringing having those more cultural and intense confrontations around it. Um, I think it's quite needed. And as a POC myself, I think if I go and receive any medical treatment, having that kind of conversation and having that be brought up, I will feel better as a sort of per, sort of recipient of that rather than it being something that has historically been ignored. That's a wonderful answer. And it's really refreshing to hear that not only are you interested in science, but you're also interested in art. And this is the thing that occurs to me as a medical educator, that often the students that seem to bring the most to their medical course are those who've done arts before. And it can be anything. It can be architecture. It can be music. It can be anything. And they seem to bring an understanding of how how something plays out in somebody's life. And they then bring that into their practice of medicine, which really enriches the experience for both them and their patients. And yet medicine often demands that you do science and focus entirely on the science before you actually even get to walk through the portals of a medical school. And what's your impression? Do you think that this is a trend that is going to continue or thrive? Or do you think we really are being forced into science? I think as a necessity of survival of patients, it will have to change. I am so, you know, this for me in this line of questioning and work is so influenced by the amazing students who have worked with me, who've taken my linguistics courses and gone on to be uh, physicians, physicians assistants, nurses, um, have students gone on to be speech and hearing scientists and pathologists. And when they bring this type of lens to that scientific work, what they learn is that they are not just a clinician, but they're a caregiver. 
there's someone who is helping someone not just have life, but have a better quality of life. And they're able to articulate that, not just to their colleagues, but also to the patients. And I think that's what's so important about this. It's not just quantity of life, but quality of life will drive this continued press on thinking about the arts and humanity and social sciences and culture as part of medicine as we go from a survival model to living and thriving and understanding how health and wellness are more explicitly intertwined. Thank you, Anne. And I want to pivot now and talk specifically about diversity in higher education. Clearly, if we are to get the kind of traction that we all want to see, that patients, regardless of their race, their color, their culture, will get the care that they deserve, we are going to need to bring more people from those cultures, from those backgrounds, into the professions. How do you think we can achieve this when there are already cultural barriers that do somehow stop that happening in the first place? We know that the number of students from those backgrounds who are included in courses such as medicine are actually not reflective in the community. How do we fix that? I think there are a lot of different approaches, but some that are really strong is building early elementary school, middle school, high school, undergraduate, cohorts of students who are interested in medicine, who are interested in research, who are interested in clinical practice, helping them understand that challenge that they will face and giving them explicit academic and professional, but also social and emotional preparation well before they're in that situation in medical school that will help them be successful. And so that early preparation and exposure, just to even know that you can do this, you can be a doctor. So many students that I've worked with said they didn't really think that that was something that they could achieve. It's really critical. And then I think what is going to be really important is to help um, medical schools then realize receiving in those cohorts of students, keeping those cohorts together, keeping those relationships together. So while students are um, going through their education and training, they don't feel as alone. Really being able to see master physicians from their demographic and social backgrounds, um, people who've been doing practicing 30, 40 years, people who've been practicing 20 years, people who have been practicing 10 years. So as Emma mentioned, I got to witness that type of medical education and practice because of my parents being African-American physicians. And I saw how important that structured practice was particularly because my father was a graduate of Meharry Medical College, historically black medical school, where that was built into how the education was done. And so I have myself have attended and been a professor at predominantly white institutions and spent a lot of my career saying, look, these models are already out there. They are already working. So we can support those models. We can do partnerships with the universities who are doing it well. And then we can adapt those models into situations. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to sit around thinking that this has not already been addressed. But we need to be students of those people who have been doing this work masterfully for generations, rather than thinking that they should be learning from us. And so that's why partnerships with historically Black colleges and universities have been so important to my own research, teaching, and research models, because Traditionally, those were seen as supports. Oh, we're going to support students or recruit students to our universities 
But what I'm saying is the opposite. You need to go over there and learn what's going on in terms of pedagogy, in terms of retention of students in the sciences, in terms of seeing those students, not just through undergraduate, but throughout their entire professional career as a matter of medical necessity for our country. So not just a matter of that student's education, their own student's success, but the need for for scholars and clinicians from those backgrounds. In my opinion, COVID has just highlighted something that many of us knew that this is a medical emergency and we kind of need to address it that way. Emma, do you see things differently from your perspective, from your generation of young person? Do you feel that we are anywhere near getting this right? I think I've been lucky enough to kind of experience what my honest describing. I was a, I'm a part of a program at Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center that essentially finds kids from underrepresented groups in science, so socioeconomic and racial, and they take those kids. And I've been, I was in a cohort of like 30 students, undergraduate and high school students. And there they brought us into research spaces at Dana and at Harvard. So we were able, I think one of the big things that I've experienced, so I, I go to private school and I also am in this program. So at my private school, like people can just call up their parents or call up the school and they can find someone to find, to give them research opportunities. But these students don't, and the student, but the students in my program don't have that same sort of access. So getting into this program automatically just like gets you so much more access as my aunt was describing, like breaking that first barrier and getting that cohort of students to really be immersed in that space and have that support is so, so important. And so the program really focuses on that, but they also do the more nitty gritty stuff that my aunt was talking about. We have a lot of sort of like info sessions and speakers come in about imposter syndrome, about how to write a formal email to somebody, about how to network properly, about the importance of graduate school and about call and about college, what opportunities you should be taking, sort of networking people together, giving people, giving students a basis of other POC or other um, people who are interested in this work and interested in these students and sort of just connecting them and giving them that basis that they can sort of take into their future. And I know for me, there's another kid who's going to go to college with me too. So there's a certain continuity to it too. I'm going to be friends with these people forever. And the connections that I made, I'm going to keep way past my high school experience. So I'm kind of a living example of what my aunt was describing. And through living it for three years, I found that it's widely successful. I mean, all these students' lives have been changed. So I think that it's definitely a possibility. I think people are getting it right. And I think my program is just one example of that. That's absolutely fantastic. But I want to go back to Anne now and ask you, for people on one side of the tracks, things are definitely improving. There's no question about it. If you've come from a relatively privileged background, regardless of your color or your race or whatever else, you are being embraced, which you should be. But for people on the other side of the tracks, the people who are increasingly in poverty, who are being disenfranchised, who are being excluded, are they experiencing a similar embracing? Are they experiencing similar opportunities? Or are we just replicating what was been done in generations before? I think replication at this point is the default um, because discrimination and racism really rely on pragmatism and expediency. And it's just easier to do what I've already seen or been doing. It's easier to stay safe and be around people who I already know how they work, how they operate. And even in the clinical setting, uh, Emma and I were reviewing clinical trial studies where physicians admitted it's just easier to have patients in their clinical trials from their own backgrounds 
because they felt like there would be a greater success rate of the trial, right? That's that same classic expediency and pragmatic argument. And so I think that it's only going to be in these pockets right now when people are actively pushing back against expediency and pragmatic in science and clinical situations where we're going to see real change. Um, I spent my, my whole career looking at that, thinking about those conversations, the realities, you know, people will always bring up, well, I'm trying to save as many people as possible, or this is the fiscal realities that I have to deal with, or what can I really do in this elite competitive situation or market? This person, you know, really won't even take full advantage of the opportunity or the life, if you're thinking about from a clinical setting, that's given. We've got to write some different narratives around those realities if we are going to be serious about change in terms of who are physicians, who are care, who are clinicians, who are researchers. And I think that reality is a redistribution of time. It takes time to mentor people who don't have that shared experience. It takes time to mentor people who don't have other doctors or physicians or researchers or professors they can necessarily call as easily. And so for me, after doing this now for 20 plus years, it's a decision-making process about time and allocations, definitely on the structural level. But like you said, those of us who are from underrepresented backgrounds, people of color, we have been doing that work, right? It has been time, extra time, time mentoring people after our work hours. And I think discussions about that reality in terms of redistributing this work it's got to be the next step because you can't let it all fall on people from those groups, even if they are privileged, because that work is tremendous. And so I, I am optimistic that in this year in particular, I see more of those conversations happening about redistribution of resources and time and whose responsibility this work is than I've seen before. So I'm going to go with that <laughs> in terms of what will happen in the future. And I think you're right, Anne. I think that those who are now breaking that mold, who are creating these opportunities, need to look back where they came from to say, how about those who've been left behind on this journey? And how can we bring them to have those same opportunities? It sounds, Emma, like we're saying, go girl, this is fantastic. You're doing great work. But by the way, you're carrying with you the responsibility for, and, and you're not alone in this, all of us are, carrying the responsibility for bringing the, changing the narrative around healthcare, around language, around culture, and making sure that we get this right. Because at the end of the day, if my neighbor, regardless of who they are, is sick, I am sick, my community is sick, because unless they are better and able to contribute to society, we're all the poorer for it. And that's the argument that's lost. It's saying, yeah, they're sick. It's those people over there. Those people over there, as, as you say, Anne, are now those people over here because the pandemic doesn't care what race you are. It doesn't care where you came from. Everyone is sick. And if we're sick, the community is sick. You're absolutely right. And I think here in the United States in particular, that combination of protests um, around racial justice combined with that reality that if my neighbor is sick, I too will most likely get sick, has got to be a catalyst for this type of change. We can't afford the life, the sacrifice, and the death of doing this again and getting it wrong again. <laughs> and I think that is the reality that I, I see, at least in, in higher education right now, as someone who's steeped in these research models of 
access and equity, um, a little bit changing is that realization. We'll take it if it's just from fear of COVID that we can't just keep doing things the same and that all of healthcare has been impacted because I can no longer go to a nice privileged hospital and get my care and not worry about the healthcare financing, the quality of care, you know, the attention paid to the patient of other people and say, oh, that's just too bad. It's unfortunate because if they don't get it as well, that COVID will continue to spread or mutate even worse. Um, and that's still going to have effects on you. So seeing that change and thinking about the virus showing how we are truly connected by the air that we breathe um, has been quite astonishing this year in particular, especially as a patient, right? And noticing that change in thinking in those patient spaces. I think, Emma, you need to have the last word. You are the voice of the future. What do you say to all of that? I'm sorry to put that responsibility on your young shoulders. I don't know. I think I'm quite excited. I think what my aunt is doing and what, you know, sort of my my community and my scientific group and all these programs, it's kind of, you know, it feels like what science is going to turn into, which I'm very excited about. I think that interconnectivity is super important. I think for too long, we've kind of seen each other as different groups. And I think that we're all really just one group trying our best out here, especially with science. I mean, science at the end of the day, at the end of the day is about you know, serving people, making them better and helping your community. And your community isn't just one color, isn't just one language. It's multiple languages, multiple colors, all these people together. And so I think that moving towards a model where, you know, community and where inclusivity and language and all these things can come together within science as well, just as much as they are outside of the hospital is a great step. I think I've been so inspired by my aunt and about from my program and my grandparents. So I can only be thankful and just try my best, you know, and just get out there and try and make the change that we're all discussing. I think your best is going to be more than enough, Emma. It's been a joy speaking with you both. I wish you all the very best and I look forward to hearing of your success. Emma, you're going to be a star in the future. I have no doubts about that. We're watching this space very carefully. Thank you both. Thank you so much for having us. This is a good conversation. Thank you so much. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.